Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the crowds that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there was only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone after the 5,000 were fed. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come here? Why? When? Why? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, But Jesus, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who God has sent. And then they said to him, Well, what signs are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors gave a manna in the wilderness. It's written, God gave them bread from heaven to eat. But then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God comes down from heaven and gives life to the whole world. They said to him, Well, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was about eight, I was adamant that God lived in the ocean. No one could tell me otherwise. I would stand on the beach with my little toes at the water's edge, and I would look out over the expanse of the water, which seemed to pour over the horizon in every direction. And I'd watch all the little sea things wash up along the shore, and I'd think about the picture book that my grandma gave me when I was six. It said scientists only really know about 10% of the things that live in the ocean. It showed pictures that detailed all the weird marine life that lived there that I could hardly believe existed that looked a little like monsters and aliens. And I was convinced that the ocean was the only place in the whole world big enough to fit God. As a child, I could hardly explain the palpably odd feeling I got every time I was near the ocean, that I was very close to something far greater than myself, and yet it was connected to me all at the same time. The hair would stand up on my arms, and I'd feel a warmth growing in my chest, and I always took it as a sign that God was not so far off. Each moment I spent at the beach as a kid felt like nothing short of a tiny miracle. When I became a teenager, I started attending a church that told me that God lived in heaven and cautioned me that I should squelch any thought of an ocean god lest people consider me a heretic, or even worse, a pantheist, right? 
I began to believe that the reason I had feelings was because I was a little girl instead of a little boy. And little girls had a tendency to let their little feelings run wild and they shouldn't be trusted. Needless to say, as a growing child, I learned very quickly to stop seeing all the signs. Instead, I read my Bible, I prayed at my bedside, I went to seminary, and I dissected the history of Christianity and debated the ins and outs of theology. All the things I was told made me a good and faithful Christian. But in time, my faith grew dry and stale. I kind of stopped seeing any signs that God might be animated in the world around me. And it wasn't until many moons later, when a very good mentor reminded me that there are often many more places where God can be found in this world than cannot be found, that I started to think maybe I was onto something as a kid. Perhaps the ocean was a sign, after all. A place where at least part of the divine life of God could be found. Perhaps more than any other gospel, John's is chocked full of signs and miracles, seven big ones to be exact, and most of the people who are present for them miss them entirely. In this story, we find that Jesus offers the first of the seven signs, and perhaps the easiest way to explain why this is so important to John is not only so that Jesus' followers would help him understand who he was, but it would show his followers how the divine life of God was moving in their lives and in the world around them. We can identify these signs in John because each miraculous thing that happened is paired and comes just before an I am statement that Jesus makes. In this case, it's I am the bread of life. Other places in John, it's I am the light of the world, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the gate. You may have heard of these. But in just about every case, his followers don't get it. Respond by becoming confused, and if not confused, then frustrated or downright indignant. And almost all of them miss the miracle entirely. In our text for this morning, Jesus and his disciples have just fed 5,000 people with a few mere loaves and fillets of fish. It's nearly impossible to think about, and yet almost no one in the crowd even noticed. The people, they rushed to Jesus after he fed them, but it's clear there's a disconnect between what they had just experienced and their understanding of Jesus. He feeds all of them, and even still, they ask him to perform yet another sign before they were willing to believe in the divine thing that was happening right before their very eyes. Now, if we take this story at face value, it seems a little crazy to us, doesn't it? Most of us, at some point in our lives, have prayed that if real and moving, the divine would somehow make itself more obvious in our lives. And so, if any of us had witnessed any one of these miraculous moments, I'm not entirely sure we'd really need to ask for another, would we? So why did they miss the miracle? Why couldn't they see the signs? Why couldn't they see the way that God was showing up? I started to look for clues in the text that might help us answer this question, and it turns out I actually wonder if this text 
can help us identify three major reasons why all of us seem to miss the divine moving in our lives so much of the time. Jesus gives us the first clue. The crowds, they come and find Jesus, and they're a little annoyed that he had left them so quickly. And he says to them, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It seems that these crowds are so distracted by the sign, by the food itself, that they aren't thinking of much else. Maybe some in the crowds are desperately poor. They hadn't eaten in days. And they're in such need that the only thing they seem to be able to focus on is what they lack. Maybe for them, the food and the full bellies itself was the miracle, and so they could care less where it came from or how it got there or who was providing it. If they were going to follow Jesus, they needed him to show up in the exact way that satisfied their exact need at that moment, and everything else was secondary. I wonder if others in the crowd were in a slightly different boat. If some of them were more well-to-do, maybe, and the provisions of food was such an everyday thing that they'd never classify it as a miracle or a sign of some divine presence in their life. Sitting around with a group of people and eating bread and fish, that's just too ordinary. And it made me curious. Do we ever miss the signs of God's presence working in our lives for these same reasons? It seems that sometimes we're so focused on what we don't have, or we're distracted by the string of chaos or bad news threatening our lives and the world around us, that we completely miss the attributes of God when they do show up. Don't we sometimes, like the crowds, put conditions around our faith that God would have to show up in this way or in that way for us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the thing we know God is calling us to do? We need a less busy schedule or healing from something or someone, or big, bold letters written across the sky. And if we don't get them, or if life doesn't go our way, then we use it as an excuse to just assume God isn't there. Other times I wonder if we miss this divine movement in our lives, because so often life is just so ordinary. It's so mundane. Most of us in the room, we're really quite fortunate And so it would be easy for us to take for granted the ordinary ways the divine life of God shows up. Because we have this mistaken idea that God will only show up in the big and flashy gestures. I think that sometimes we miss the greatest acts of divinity. The greatest miracles unfolding in the world. Like the kindness of strangers or a growing child or a plant's ability to communicate with another plant, or an ocean tide, or even our daily bread, simply because we haven't trained our eyes to see the divine life of God at work in them. Or because we as the church might train people out of seeing it in them. The second clue in this text for why I think we sometimes miss the divine moving in our lives comes from a question that the crowds ask Jesus. What must we do to perform the works of God? It seems that the crowds are so enamored by what Jesus is doing that they want to do it too. They want power. The power to change their own circumstances. The power to change the lives of those in the world around them. They want to perform and accomplish the same mighty things that Jesus is doing. 
But they have no idea where this power comes from. And they hadn't allowed it to shape and transform their own hearts and minds. Jesus has to remind them that this is a power that doesn't come from them, that there is a power at work outside of their own abilities and accomplishments in the world. I wonder if sometimes we fail to see the power of God at work because we live in a culture that teaches us that our world will only change when we accrue as much power and prestige as we can for ourselves. I wonder if sometimes we put too much emphasis on what we accomplish. Many of us have talked over the last month about how grateful we are that this church is one that's always been historically socially minded. But do we ever mistakenly think that it's by exerting our own power that people's lives are changed? Do we pay as much attention to the way God is changing us personally as we do the change we want to see others make or the change we want to make in the world? Have we experienced a love of God for ourselves that fuels every single thing we do? The crowds in this passage remind us that the line between speaking out because we've experienced the power of God that has changed us And speaking out because we want to exert and obtain power for ourselves, that line is paper thin, and we don't always know when we've crossed it. The third clue in this text for why the crowds, and I think we often fail to see God's presence in our lives, comes to us in their rationale for why they need to see another miracle from Jesus at all. What is the sign you're going to give us, Jesus, that we might see it and believe you? Our ancestors, they ate bread, they ate manna in the wilderness. God gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do? The crowd spent so much of their time looking back on the stories of their history and how God had been faithful to them in the past that they were too distracted to see the way God was showing up for them in the present. Perhaps their present circumstances made it just too difficult to see clearly. Or maybe they thought so little of themselves they couldn't fathom why God would show up for them now. But in in Jesus' response, he reminds the crowds that the story of God that they remember, the story, it's not just a story about the past. It's a story that they reread and they retell and they remember and that they rebuild community around again and again because it's a reminder that God has always been a God that does stuff in the present. God had freed their ancestors from slavery, and God had given them manna in the wilderness, but the Spirit of God was also taking care of them right now. Jesus was the bread that they needed, and all they had to do was face forward to encounter it. I think sometimes we can become a little too distracted by the past. Sure, our past can teach us an awful lot, But just like the crowds, I think sometimes we grope furiously for the past, hoping that it will somehow give us a reminder that God showed up at one point in our lives, and we miss all the signs that remind us that hope is here and God is showing up right now. Instead of training our eyes to see where the divine life of God is moving, we get fixated on things in the past when it was easier or more comfortable. We let the past dictate what we think God will or won't do in the future, what we should or shouldn't do in the future. 
It's a lot easier to look back on our lives and attribute all the good things we have to the divine presence of God, but it's a lot harder to trust that that divine presence is still here with us now when so much of the future is unknown. As a church, I have to wonder, do we believe it? Do we feel it deep in our bones that the divine love of God is actually alive and moving in the world today, or are we missing all the signs? Do we use scripture or think about our history with an eye to what new thing God might be doing in our present, or do we use him to limit God? Are we so caught up in the busyness of our lives or the chaos of the world around us that we don't take the time to train our eyes to see what God might be doing or where God might be calling us to go? Do we live in such privilege that we're almost blind to the miraculous ways divinity shows up in all the ways, all the things we take for granted? Have we fooled ourselves into thinking that the greatest power in this world is our own human power, and so we waste our lives in discontentment, striving for things that will never satisfy, and forgetting that each of us are being called to participate in something much greater than ourselves? It seems that sometimes we're so riddled with anxiety about the future or grieving the past that we aren't able to make room for the amazing things God is trying to do in our lives right now. You know, our life and our journey with God, it's a journey. It's a process that never really stops becoming, wherein God is always moving and always encountering and always breathing new life into us. But so much of the time, we trick ourselves into thinking that we've somehow arrived and we miss every sign that God is doing something right now. Just like the crowds that followed Jesus and their ancestors who came a hundred years before them, hundreds of years before them, and my eight-year-old self on the ocean shoreline, Today and every day, we are being called into new depths of relationship to the divine life of God in the world. You and me, we are being called into new depths of relationship with one another and with ourselves and in this community. And so we can't afford to miss the miracles, friends, for they just might be where our greatest hope for the future lies. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes. In a world that is chaotic, in lives that are busy, in times that are changing, God, we ask that in the presence of all of it, that we would see your signs, that we would think about the history of this church and our lives and your scriptures, the ways in which you have always showed up in the present, and that it would encourage us to look for the ways right now you are moving and you are calling us into the present to find your love in the world, to be your love in the world. Gracious God, open our eyes. Help us to see where you are moving this day and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.